Okay, so we are here today with RK Gold, who is a, an amazing author and entrepreneur. And I guess I'll let you oof, introduce oof. yourself. Oof, don't call me amazing entrepreneur yet. Work has been kicking my ass during this COVID era where you work twice the hours and make half the pay. Um, well, you make, it, you make it look good anyway. <laughs> Every time I talk I, to you, you're always working really hard. I appreciate it. Um, you know what, actually, I had a funny conversations let's let's we we said before this this was gonna be sloppy it's episode zero let's go off on our first tangent um i was actually talking to family friends about essentially i think i even mentioned it to you about how so i i I have my master's degree in economics i think that education that degree it gives me a high ceiling for like worst case scenario something happens i lose my income i lose my job i lose my business i can i have a high ceiling for what i can apply for but i also have an incredibly low floor because when i think of tangible skills that you get for getting a master's degree in economics it's minimal so while i could arguably do well and find a decent high paying job if all else fails i'm falling pretty far because i don't have many safety barriers below that it's 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 pretty much high ceiling nothing else so i've been talking to people about how you know we're in a legitimate crisis that's been going on for over half a year. Uh, American GDP is shrunk 10%, like negative 10% GDP net plus, because uh, I forgot what the what, I forgot what the decimal afterwards is. Um, unemployment sky high. There's no guarantee that I'm going to have this business forever. And even though it's surviving right now, even though I have a, a I can make a paycheck right now, or I can pay myself right now. There's no guarantee it's going to stay forever. So I'm talking about ways to to raise my floor. Already have a high ceiling. Need to have a high floor now. So I'm I'm looking at I'm looking at some trade schools in or in order to bolster that up. So as far as being entrepreneurial and being busy, this is a fantastic tangent because I'm curious what your listeners think. I'm looking at going back to school for web development and programming uh, to get a to get a nine month certificate in that or welding. Well, I think it's good to cast your net, but I think it's also important to note, like you're talking about being an entrepreneur and everything else, but even even looking at what would be perceived as the steady mainstream jobs. Well, a lot of those jobs now are in jeopardy too. So, you know, I think everyone is kind of in that position at the moment. So, you know, I think that you're probably in an advantageous position that you can uh, cast your net wider and start to learn while you're still working on your own terms. So I think you've got a a good, albeit harder position um, to go from there. So, I mean, at least from the outside looking in, I can see that you've got this work ethic and you've got this business plan that just seems to be perfectly tailored for working in the COVID era. And that's why I think small businesses are actually, I mean, they've, they've been hit harder, obviously, but I guess being that small businesses can often work from home, it's, it's probably slightly more advantageous than businesses that are used to working in offices and used to having massive staff and things like that. So I think, you know, there are some, I don't want to call them pluses, but, you know, there are some advantages that you've already been working in the way that businesses seem to have to go now. Yeah, our, our, our agility has definitely been a benefit in COVID times. Uh, our, our ability to, we, we literally completely changed our services and our target demographic within a month. We had a huge tur- we we had a ridiculously high turnover rate uh, when COVID hit, and like the month before COVID hit, we lost we lost almost half of our clients because because uh, yeah. ev- everyone was just like you know retreating, um, understandably so, and things were not looking good at all. We had to completely transform what we offered um, in order to grow, and, and we thankfully have regained all of those losses and then some uh, through this transformation. 
but there's no guarantee that that's going to happen next time. And I'm almost thinking that while times are good, this is the time to take those defensive measures um, and sure up. If, if I do something like web development, for example, it shares up my, my personal employment as well as the services that Hummingbird can offer. If I were to do something like welding, that would just be my personal security, but it would still be something to take a defensive measure of any future uh, volatility. Uh, definitely well, raise that floor. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it too, I guess, is that you're using that to not not just have a complete you know, change in, in career. It's more so that you're saying... Um, that you're going to use it to build off what you're already doing. Like say you're doing web design or graphic design or, you know, something like that. You can use that in the field that you already have, but it also opens up newer avenues to, to look into as well. So I think it's that sort of strategic learning. And then really you could call it professional learning anyway, because it's part of the, the business that you're already in. Yeah, well, specifically the web development thing, absolutely. Now, what I will say is bringing this all full circle to storytelling is, let's get into that. Uh, basics of a story is, what, what would that be? If we go the hero's journey route, there's obviously the introduction of a new world, um, the, the, the refusal of the call and the entering of a world that he's unfamiliar with, but he ultimately becomes the better person for it when he, when he returns. I'm using he just because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to apply this to the, sto- to the non-story just we just... It really yeah thank you thank you for that <laughs> um no but essentially i'm just trying to I'm, I'm honestly trying to connect the threads right here of turning it into a story of of, of me going from from traditional uh, academia to, to yeah. trade school um in an order that people normally don't necessarily uh go i'm not saying it doesn't happen but i'm just saying normally doesn't um in in order in entering this potentially foreign world in order to get necessary skills that that could i mean i'm i would just say i'm i'm entering a new world uh and then bringing back skills to the world that i start in which ultimately makes me a better person which does follow the traditional hero's journey uh method so i wanted to bring it back to storytelling no you that's perfect and it, it does um i like how you were able to to bring that character development into real life people and their their changes and and events that that change their personality and grow them as a person because I guess the hero's journey is seen as like the gold standard. And I think that's because obviously um, as, along with many other people who have used it, George Lucas is, you know, knew you were going to go star Wars knew it. 10 seconds in I'm going star Wars. It's happening. No, but it may, it's, it's but- <laughs> so perfect for it because his first edit was literally verbatim. The hero's journey. He, he like, he, he had his first draft and he was like, you know what? This hero's journey makes sense. So he rewrote it to perfectly mirror the hero's journey. Yeah. And well, that's the, the reason I bring that up is because that's seen as like the gold standard, like the original trilogy of Star Wars is seen as the gold standard of the hero's journey. But I think the hero's journey in terms of plotting a story seems a little bit oversimplified for a lot of people and people see it as a checklist. And now I know that you have changed your plotting structure for your latest book compared to your other books. But when people just follow the hero's journey, I think that's when you end up in that cliched territory where everyone's like, Oh, this is just ripped off star Wars or or, this is just ripped off something else. Because I don't think that plotting should be checking off boxes and hitting particular beats. I think you're setting up something on a very shaky foundation because you're not offering something that's, substantial to begin with and that's where i think that you need to have that that base 
And that's where I think that the core idea of a story shouldn't be, I want to have, you know, samurai in space, or I want to have a magical wizard school. I think it needs to be on a more fundamental level than that. I think it needs to be, you know, what does it mean to be a a good friend or, you know, sacrificing for the greater good, you know, all these themes that I'm coming up with off the top of my head. You you can make anything a theme. You could make it, you know, you could literally have a theme of an, of an apple a day keeps the doctor away. And you could turn that into a theme. You you could have a theme where reading books uh, prepares you to, to fight aliens better than lifting weights. Like the, these are all themes. You can turn anything into a theme as, as far, as long as it's, I don't want to say non-tangible, but as long as it's represented by something else within the story and it recurs. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of what I'm sort of getting at here is that um, so many beginning writers think that I'm going to find that one idea that's really going to take off. Like, you know, Harry Potter was a great idea and everyone got behind it because, you know, it was such a great concept of a magical school, but that's not what people brought in because there's several other magical school stories. They're just, they're about other things and, or some of them are trying to be Harry Potter, you know, not to name names, Cassandra Clare and Holly Black. Oh, just did. Um, (laughs) But there are so many different things that are, are trying to emulate stories now, but they're not seeing that that's not the reason why people came to it. People don't come to Star Wars because it's in space. And that's why you have such a division over people who say, you know, they like Star Wars and they don't like Star Trek or vice versa. I mean, I like them both, but they're two completely different things, even though they're both set in space and even though they all have ships and explosions and they're, they're set they're set in the same place, but they're two completely different stories. One's about war and one's about peace because the setting, at least to me, I don't know about you, but the setting is almost irrelevant. Really what your story is about beneath the surface is the core point, but that I suppose comes from an an eclectic reader. So I'm not specifically locked into a, into a specific genre. So I, I, it could be just me, but that's how I feel anyway. Well, I mean, I guess what I could say is the setting is not useless, obviously, uh, but I understand what you're saying in that uh, it, it it all comes down to the the framing of the story. Like there there are those people who take uh, movies from different genres and then re-edit them to make them into trailers in completely different genres. Like there are romance movies that are uh, ha- have trailers editing out se- editing scenes together and applying music to it to make them come across as horror. You can find this on YouTube. So I do agree in that uh, framing. Is the most is probably the most important thing for tone Fra- framing and tone uh, would be would be more important for casting the overall feel of why you go to a book more than setting. Um, so so I do I do I do agree with you on that front. Also, quickly touching back on Cassandra Clare and Holly Black, can we just can we just mention how? And I understand I'm repeating myself a lot right now, but it's it's late at night, so that tends to happen. Um, can we just mention? how they didn't just rip off Harry Potter. They ripped off the movie specifically. One look at that cover, as you pointed out in your video on it, and you can tell that this was not written to rip off the books. This was written to rip off the movies, to get that nostalgia crowd in college who feels a void in their life since the last movie came out and were looking for something to buy. Which I suppose probably, in fairness to those two authors... Brilliant marketing. They, they didn't do the marketing and they didn't do the cover. So, I mean, in fairness to them, it's not entirely on them, but the story itself was fairly um, derivative, although copped a lot of flack on, um, on YouTube over that for, for saying that because, you know, dare I have an opinion about 
Cassandra Clare or Holly Black. Um, <laughs> but that aside. Oh, I know what I wanted to add to that as well. Yeah. On your comments about um, the structure of a story, I, I would argue that something like the hero's journey for people, for young writers is important. Not the hero's journey specifically, but these, uh, the, essentially finding a mentor and that mentor can be a system like jo joseph campbell can be your mentor um and teaching yourself to write by diving deeper into one or two people's work and teaching yourself the beats of their work and the plot structure of their work to find something that works for you to find to find basically create your your prototype engine to get your car moving forward and then once you sort of are able to create a, a, a self-propelling vehicle you then start improvising you then start tinkering with it um, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with with learning from one specific style and understanding the beats of it before improvising and creating your own unique style no and that's and that's i completely agree because i when I first started writing, you know, obviously it was just a jumbled mess and, you know, I wanted to look for some way to find structure and I used the hero's journey. Um, and then a beta reader told me that it was, it was essentially star Wars, but the, that's a compliment. Yeah. Well, well, no, it was, it was derivative no, I, of Star Wars, which is not do. a compliment, <laughs> but, um, but I see that as a necessary tool, um, but I think it's just really important for, for beginning writers to know that that's not the be-all, end-all, and you don't have to check off boxes. It's about teaching yourself structure and teaching yourself about plotting and pacing, but it's, it's not the end result because otherwise it does end up kind of derivative. Yeah, and, and I definitely hear you out on that. Um... I would actually argue, okay, here's our first hot take of your podcast. I'm excited to deliver this early. Um, I, I would argue it's, it's better to come across for a young writer as derivative than pretentious. Oh, no, I'd absolutely agree. And that's why I, I, I'm pretty sure I started it and I haven't actually finished it. So I don't want to speak too much on this one. So like, take it with a grain of salt, but Christopher Paolini's Aragon follows that hero's journey like to a T and look how popular his books are. Look like, look how big his career has become and he's doing his own stuff now and he's progressed and evolved as, as a writer. But um, he started off with what a lot of people deem a fairly derivative work. Um, but there's nothing really wrong with that because when he wrote it, he was a kid. He was 16. That's right. He was or a 17, kid. And that's yeah. like, as a, as a 16 and 17 year old, that is impressive stuff. It's incredible. It's incredible to retain that kind of information at that age and to make it good enough. Here's one thing too. I'm sorry to get so energized about this. Good enough is not a bad thing. You're not going to be great when you come out the gate. And it is so important to remember that. It is, I think the most important lesson any aspiring writer can learn is put your, check your ego at the door. Because it's going to be a lot of you getting torn down and it is nothing personal. You just have to accept the fact that you suck. And once you accept that fact, it's fucking liberating. I'm going to swear because I understand because this is a fucking podcast. Um, it's, fucking, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fucking liberating to be able to say I suck at a skill I can get better at. But I think it's also important to realize that you will never achieve the perfection that you envision in your head when you first think of starting to write. Like you think I'm going to write this amazing book and everyone's going to love it because it's going to be perfectly plotted and the prose is going to be just melt in your mouth and it's just going to be amazing and everyone's just going to devour these books. And it's like, yeah, but you're never going to get that. 
you're reading my mind right now and it's because there is no one-to-one language for imagination we can i guarantee you that your most brilliant thoughts cannot be converted to a satisfying language we just don't have the language for it it's part of the reason why people go on these psychedelic journeys and can't tell you what they bring back well i think i think part of it too could be like when you know how people will say and i'm sure you've heard it as an author that people will say, Oh, it's so easy to write a book. Like I could do that. The reason in their head, they think they could do that is because in their head, they don't need to worry about prose or plot holes or anything like that. They can just say, Oh yeah, I've got this great idea for a story. It doesn't matter that when you put it down on paper, there's this massive freaking plot hole sitting there that ruins everything because in your head, you don't need to think about that. You can fill it in, but you can't do that. And it doesn't fucking matter. No, that's right. It doesn't matter though, because here's the thing. They didn't say it's easy to write a good book. They said it's easy to write a book. And I agree with them. You, you want to write 50,000 shitty words. Honestly, it's easier than getting in shape for your New Year's resolution. Yeah. I've written plenty of shitty books in my life. There is nothing easier because no one sees them. You don't have to feel like you're judged for it. And you can follow a cool idea as long as you want, no matter how many mistakes it makes and how many plot holes it leaves behind. Well, that's the thing too. Like if it was just for you, you don't really need to do plotting and pacing at all because it's interesting to you. So you can keep going with it. Whereas like if you're writing with the intention of publishing it, you do probably need, I mean, I don't know about you, but I sit down and if I'm going to write a story, I will sit down and probably spend like a week planning out everything like down to the symbols that are going to be in it and the characters and what they mean and how they're connected and like, not just the beats, but every single element of the story. Now that's how Ooh. I work. Um, I like how you work. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's, uh, it can be a little bit exhausting of a process at the beginning, but it definitely pays off. And I can understand why some people wouldn't want to do that because you're like, I just want to get straight into it and I just want to jump in, but it, it pays off so much more to do that groundwork at the beginning and notice any flaws before you get to the point where you've actually written anything. So for, for you, um, yeah, for I, I, I agree with that. And that actually leads me, I'm sorry for cutting off. I'm just energized by this conversation. No, I'm glad you're energized by it. Fantastic. So what I was going to say is ultimately one of the best things a young writer can do as well is ask themselves what the least, what their least favorite part or their, or their part of writing the book they're least looking forward to doing and make sure that you make that part as easy as possible in the rough draft. Like for me, the most difficult part of writing a book, and it's why I have so many rough drafts on my computer, was the second draft. Part of the reason why I'm going in with a little bit more confidence for Father in the Forest is because this is the first book I ever wrote that I had the second draft in mind while I was writing the first. I understand that sounds a little stupid when I say it out loud, but hear me out. Before I was writing it, I was deeply following the Stephen King on writing method of just focus on getting the rough draft on the page, putting it away for a while, and then fixing it later. I realized the mistakes I made were a little too overwhelming for me to want to fix. They could be fixed, but they were too overwhelming for me in the way my mind works. I needed to figure out a way to make that second draft easier than the first. So I went in with the proper amount of plotting, and I also did some editing along the way. I I completely violated the cardinal rule of the Stephen King method, which is write, 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 write. And I did some self-editing while I was writing the rough draft. It took me a little longer to write the rough draft than my previous rough drafts, but it took me so much less time to complete. Well, I actually completed the second draft and it took me a lot less time than any of my other revisions. Well, the thing, like I would definitely say that I admire Stephen King. And so I don't want to, you know, throw shade on him 
at all because well, I think he's not he throwing is, shade. It works for him. Yeah, and like it, he he is an amazing writer. Um, but I will say that for some of his books, probably the biggest criticism that people do have of his books is sometimes the ends meander off and they're not as good as the beginning or the initial concept. There's been quite a few books that people have had that issue with his work. And I think the that climax comes... of the dark tower, <laughs> I... the climax of the dark tower was trash. I love the dark tower. It's one of my favorite series of all time. The fight with against the crimson King was trash. It was essentially the fight between Jake, the do- uh, Jake, the dog and Finn, the human versus a red <laughs> ice King. Yeah, if, if the Ice King was crimson, that was pretty much how I envisioned the end of the dark. Now, okay, the ending itself was brilliant because it, uh, spoiler alert, I'll, I'll be quiet for five seconds, spoiler alert. Obviously, it, it proves that he's living in a, in a cycle and when he returns back to his, to, to the, uh, I forgot what the, the battle was where he didn't pick up the horn of his fallen friend, uh, he picks it up in the last time, which, which just tells the reader and gives us the assumption that it's going to be the last time that, um, uh, that the gunslinger goes through his life pursuing the man in black um, and finally breaks the cycle. But, and then that's brilliant. But the actual climactic fight itself was trash. I'm sorry for cutting off again. Again, I'm just so energized. I love talking stories, man. No, no, that's great. And, and I guess the, the big one that I'm thinking of is it. Uh, a lot of the stuff in the climax with the adults is not as impressive as the stuff with the kids. Now it's been a while since I've read that book, but um you know, he has certain parts that don't work. And, and like a lot of people thought under the dome, the ending was pretty awful, but I, I actually liked it. And I liked the twist in that, but I mean, it, it worked for me, but I can understand why, because he has that approach. The downside to that is you can write yourself into a corner and then you can end up with a situation that I know you agree with me on, which is, you know, Avengers Endgame, where it's like, Hey, we, we've Let's just killed everyone. <laughs> Yeah, we've just killed everyone, but now like let's let's go back with like time travel and and we'll fix it all and we'll bring everyone back. The only problem of course is that I mean that renders the entire previous movie redundant and that the deaths meant nothing. Let's get blasphemous here. Let's get blasphemous. Do it. Endgame was more trash than Rise of Skywalker. For that reason, for that reason, entertainment value. You know what? If you want to say Endgame was more entertaining than Rise of Skywalker, I will cheer right there with you. If you want to talk about core elements of writing a good story, Rise of Skywalker, it fucked up a lot, but it did not rely on the time travel trope. It they they both went about it didn't. They they both went about the same thing. They both went about trying to do the same thing. Uh, Endgame had to retcon everything from what was the one before it um why am i blanking on it the um uh, i can't even remember <laughs> the, 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 the first one with thanos that doesn't Infinity, matter anymore. Infinity, infinity wars War. yeah yeah so, so endgame retcon that it, it did it a little more smoothly because they added a time machine and a, and, a, and a funny hulk rise of skywalker at the very least kept it linear it expanded the universe it didn't bother to explore any of its expansions which is weak writing but it, um foundationally i would argue i prefer that mode of storytelling i I would rather watch endgame than rise of skywalker but script to script i bet you i'd rather read rise of skywalker script i mean i would probably say that i would rather watch the rise of skywalker than endgame but that's because i'm not like the the biggest marvel fan like i enjoy but you tried and you couldn't get through rise of skywalker the second time no i did 
I oh, did. I, I watched okay. it, but I was kind of like watching it while I was doing other things. Um, so I kind of wasn't paying super close attention. Um, but yeah, like when I, when I was watching Endgame, I think it was the fact that everyone hyped up Endgame so much, but I'm like, this is not well written, like at all. And, and then just because you've got 57 A-list actors in it, apparently that made it good. And I was like, well, sometimes less is more. Just because you've got, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer for five frames of the movie doesn't mean that it makes it better. You're not giving her anything to do. God, and let's just talk about the Captain Marvel. Here's the thing. I, I love and respect Captain Marvel's character. I just, I did not like how she was used in Endgame. She was there for a second, she disappeared, and then she comes back at the very end to save everyone. It would have been like if Gandalf disappeared in the Fellowship, came back in The Return of the King to just quickly blind Sauron's eye while Frodo cast the, the ring in Mount Doom. Yeah, it's the, it's the deus ex machina. Yeah, it, it was just, what the heck? Uh, she, she disappeared to go take care of other planets. That's a fine decision, but don't just have her randomly come back and just be like, Oh shit. I have to, I have to win the day now for everyone. Cause also then it's just like, why did you bring everyone back? If the person that ends up defeating Thanos and the entire fleet was someone who wasn't even killed the first time anyway, why bring everyone back? Because money franchise recognition, like <laughs> we've lost half of our cast of characters. We need them back. It was, it was just, I don't even know how to say it. Cause like saying it's trash, I understand it's too harsh. It's just such a fun word to say. It's, it's entertaining, but. Oh, well, I mean, honest, but to be honest, I wasn't as entertained, but I think that could possibly come down to that. Everyone has said it's so good. So I went in with my expectations being maybe a little bit too high uh, and they were kind of let down, but I just didn't think it was that great. And I think so many people think when you get a nearly three hour long movie or more than three hours, I can't even remember that that instantly somehow makes it better just because it's longer and because it's got more stuff in it. And I'm like, yeah, but it, does it, does it actually explore anything? Is there an actual theme to it? Or is it just a lot of stuff going on for, you know, three hours? Marvel got the third, got Thor Ragnarok, right. And ever since then, They've been almost just trying to emulate that charm that Taika Waititi... Is that how you pronounce it? Waititi? Waititi? Yeah, Waititi? I think so. That's how I uh, say they've it. Been <laughs> they've, been they've been trying to emulate his charm without just bringing him back. And, and I guess that brings me to something that I wanted to talk to you about, which is books and movies and, to a lesser extent, video games. A, a lot of... Or probably not even video games. That's probably one of the only ones that... Shout out The Witcher. Man, shout out The Witcher. I just have to shout out The Witcher real quick. I have not read the books yet, uh, and I, I fully intend to. But holy shit, talk about storytelling. That's so pure. It's been able to, to just thrive in every medium it's been in. Yeah, and, and even, even as, as a video game, like the, the level of atmosphere and character and things that they could build up is, is incredible. Witcher 3 is five years old and holds up to games today. I'm sorry, five years in video games is a lifetime. Yeah, no, it is. And that's why it is an incredible game. It's one of my favorite games of all time because it's just so immersive and you can create, like it's, they've created this, this dark, gritty world, but it doesn't feel like the kind of dark, gritty world that Hollywood is putting out at the moment. It feels genuine and it feels lived in. It doesn't feel like it's trying to achieve something to appeal to fans. It feels like a, a genuine world that's been created, which I guess is what, is what I'm kind of talking about at the moment that, 
with books and um, movies, so much of the market now is about trying to emulate what has already come rather than creating a, a meaningful story, which comes back full circle to what we were saying, which is that, you know, this, the beginnings, when you start a story, at least in my mind, it should be, what am I trying to say with this? What, what is the moral message? I mean, obviously I hate to say the moral because you don't want it to be like the after school special where, you know, they sit down and talk about what the moral is. You obviously want to do it in a more subtle way, but you know, you want to come up with a moral to the story that seems unique. And once you can do that, there will be a purpose and a reason for the story to exist. But so much of what's created now is just trying to emulate, Hey, we've got Han Solo in this. Hey, we've got princess Leia in this, you know, look, look at here, these characters from comic books that you like. It's, it seems very fan servicey. Can I, can I I just sum it up to the detriment of storytelling, but yeah, go. Yeah. I'm just going to sum it up real quick. People aren't asking why nearly enough. That, that, that's, that's me summing it up. That's all I have to say on it. People aren't asking why enough. You want to write a book about uh, Pokemon meets Avatar The Last Airbender. Why? If, 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 if your answer is something simple, like these were just two of the most impactful TV shows I watched growing up, that's fine. But you should be able to at least answer one why. And the fact that just challenging it with this one layer of why is potentially controversial. Like, why did you choose to... <laughs> like why did you choose not to fulfill jj abrams or ryan johnson's sole direction for the star wars franchise yeah, the fact no. that it's con- it's controversial controversial just to ask that one layer of why speaks volumes to the state of storytelling because the point of storytelling is to be profound in some ways the point of storytelling is to ask why you're reading this book to understand why if you're not asking why this character is on this journey and you're just a mindless consumer, then guess what? You are better off just binge watching Netflix. And that's not meant to be an insult. It's just the point of, it's just the one knock on consumption through like visual, visual consumption is that it it turned off the brain of stimulant thought. And you just became a one-way consumer who didn't critically analyze what you were consuming. You just accepted everything. But the way you hear people's talking about how they read books today, it's just one way consumer. It's one way eating that information and not questioning it at all. I'm, I'm sorry, here, I'll let no, you go. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't mean to talk. I completely agree with you on that. And I think you, you've summed it up perfectly that there's no question of why. Why are we doing this? Why are we reading this? Why are we writing this scene in this character, this whole book? Like, why are we doing this? And, and I guess it's about probing further, which as you say, if you said, um, oh, you know, Avatar The Last Airbender was a huge book for me. And so was, I can't remember what the other one you said was, but if you were crossing these two things, you've got to ask that question again, why? Why was that so impactful to you? Was it, was it because of the magic system? Probably not. It was probably actually the heart behind it that you fell in love with. And that's the thing, you've got to really ask yourself, what was it that you liked? Because what you originally thought when you were 12 years old, it's not going to be the same thing when you look at it with a critical eye about why you loved it, because there's other things with intricate magic systems that you didn't like. So I think it is really important to ask that question. Why, when you're creating a story and, and, and also, and we were talking about this today, this notion of recasting someone as something else, whatever it may be like, you know, recasting a character as gay or, you know, creating some sort of diversity, asking yourself, why am I doing this? Like, am I doing this to look good on Twitter or is there a valid reason? And, and for most parts, 
there is a valid reason to change characters and add different elements because they add a different perspective and you can see the character through a different lens. But if you're just doing it to score brownie points with people on Twitter, I'm not behind that. Not only are you not behind that, this could actually save a young creative just questioning their decisions. If you're doing it to sell more books and that's the reason why you're adding diversity, there is a good chance you will get called out for tokenism. I mean, the, the one thing worse than no diversity is trying to profit off of diversity. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, because then it just turns you into this heartless user instead of someone who's actually a solution. So believe me, you're going to be saving yourself if you ask why. No, absolutely. And, and, and the other thing is, I guess, you will save yourself a lot of heartache, even if you look at it on, on a core fundamental level. If you say, why am I writing this story? I'm writing it because I like star wars and i like lots of big battles and and you know sword fights and stuff like that well that's not a good enough reason you need to dive deeper if you do that and you write an entire book it's not going to be worth reading and you're going to be up shit creek basically and whereas if you took that time in the beginning and that's what i said with my personal plotting process you you sort of stop and say okay well why am i doing this what's the what's the meaningful reason what's the deeper reason why i'm telling this story why why am i going to invest all of this time and once i come up with that reason it makes for a better final product but it also pushes me to keep going because i know that there's a valid reason behind why i'm telling this story because i mean the thing is you've got to remember that writing a book as much as they make it look easy on tv it takes a lot of time and a lot of work to get it out you know i know we said you can you can churn out a, a terrible book but <laughs> writing a book does yeah, take or, a long time or, or if or if you're mike anderley you can launch a million dollar empire in in nine days jesus christ yeah well i mean if if you if you don't (laughs) shout out robot or something i don't know how he does that i'd love to know i just want to also add something to your point too of the sword fighting thing y'all that is a fine place to start just keep asking why i want to bring up a specific example uh daniel green anyone who's listening to this podcast chances are you may have heard of his youtube channel he talks about the sword fighting and wheel of time and how it's different in each culture and it says a lot about where someone came from do you have imagined how cool it is to think how different styles of fighting can identify different aspects of your cultures and how you want to explore the cultures of your world through how they combat one another like that's a fascinating why to latch on to and it comes from the sword fighting it just comes down to just peeling back those layers yeah and and i guess this comes back to my plotting structure which i think is very similar to your uh recent one which i got from john truby's uh anatomy of a story where you have to break down different cultures and how how those different cultures um you know, vary from one another and how do they tie to the story? And you, you've really got to flesh out your entire world. How do you go about fleshing out an entire world? Cause I know some people can go overboard and, you know, create, you know, this fantasy world where they're in the Glork forest with these, you know, zips or, you know, something. And then the names are with about seven apostrophes and they, they create this deep lore but sometimes they overcommit and then it doesn't translate well to a story. So how do you go about creating a rich but accessible fantasy world? 
So Hello Future Me actually created an interesting video on it that I think sums it up better than I could for my style. Because as you know, I'm heavily inspired by Studio Ghibli. Um, and he defines those amazing. movies. And he defines those movies, though, using, and I completely agree, the Brandon Sanderson's magic system only for world building with hard and soft world building. Now, you don't necessarily have to have all of the answers for your world, specifically if you're writing like me for a middle grade audience. Um, I would argue that it's a detriment to put firm boundaries on your world early on. Um, just look at Harry Potter. Think of how much you actually learn about the wizarding world in that first book. You learn enough, but you don't learn everything. In fact, you learn more and more about it as each book goes on. Can you imagine how boring the first book of Harry Potter would have been if it said, and just so you know, in three years, you're going to be, there, there's the Triwizard Tournament that's coming up. And, uh, but by the way, here's Cornelius Fudge. Uh, here's how, uh, here's the Wizengot. Here's how our legal system works. Uh, no, we didn't need to know any of that. Basically, what we learned was Diagon Alley exists and Green Gots exists. We didn't even learn about uh, Hogsmeade until the third book. And that's and, right next to Hogwarts. And I guess that's how we come back to um, plotting and pacing because there's only so much that you can, you could, well, there's only so much exposition that you can put in before it starts to become info dumping and you can't do that in a story because they instantly disconnect. The readers will instantly disconnect. But if you were to look, so many people look at established franchises that have been around for 20, 30, 40 years and say, Oh, well, I want that level of law. But what they don't do is go back to the first entry and say, Oh, well, okay. But we've only seen this tiny little bit. Like I know I, use it all the time but like star wars you go to the first star wars movie it is incredibly basic compared to the expanded lore you know it's an entry point and it's the same with harry potter or you know even lord of the rings yeah, how much lord of the, the rings start of lord, lord of, of the, the rings, rings was the shire i'm sorry for cutting in then i didn't mean to cut no in. no no, no I, th this entire episode should just be titled sorry to cut in <laughs> <laughs> um but i totally agree i agree with everything that you're saying i think that you know, you look at all these major franchises and major expanded universes, they, they don't try to get into stuff like from the get go. They, they let you get into the story and ease you into the world. And I think so many people can get so caught up in their world building because they, they might spend a year or two on their world building and have these in, in immensely fleshed out worlds with races and languages and all these different things. And in their head, it's easily accessible because they've created it and they've spent the last two years building upon this. But, you know, to someone who knows nothing about it, it's a really ridiculously steep learning curve. And I guess the, the, the best way to go about it, that's like so consistent across every genre and every author is just always keep the world in the perspective of your POV. So if you're writing a first person or a third person limited, always keep the world within the perspective of what they know and what's relevant to them at that point in time. So for example, in Father in the Forest, um, most travel is done by foot, by car, by railway, by trolley. It's a, steam, it's a steampunk realm. So there's, yeah. there's trains, but they're still, it's also a new country. So they have not fully expanded on their trains yet. Um, it, there are airships, but again, it's a new country um, that just 
declared its independence and it was never known for its navy. So the, these are areas where it's still relying on other nations for. It would have been incredibly boring for me to just end, start this off with the details of the economy, of, of uh, the logistics, of, of how the government operates. Like it, it, it operates, honestly, the government is loosely based on Israel's Knesset. It's literally called Nisset in my, in my uh, book, um, just because I think it's, a fa that's another thing too. Study real world countries for for your world building. It will help. Um, <laughs> well, I think, same thing. I think that was the uh, video by the same person that you sent me talking about evil empires and talking about, well, why are they there and how do they operate? You know, do they control everything? Because it's not, it's not a great method and it will fall apart very quickly. So, oh yeah, the rise of empires. And he has that skit at the beginning of how do you plan on controlling everyone? Fear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't really work. Um, I, I think that that was a great video and an example too of, of your world building and I think creating something that seems realistic. Yeah, the more you're basing it in reality, the more realistic it will be. So, I mean, in his example for, uh, for what we're talking about, pointing out the train systems that connect that empire is incredibly important. If, if it takes a while for, one, for the centralized force to contact the outer regions, then maybe they do delegate more. Um, and it's the same thing with just the, the overall technology, asking these basic questions um, and, and propaganda for how they keep everyone supporting them. Uh, I, I love the example for, for Legend of Korra that they had with Kavira, how she was going into these towns, and obviously she had some nefarious practices as well, but ultimately the first thing she was promising was protection against the bandits, which at the time was a top priority for all of these towns. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to that because I still haven't caught up, but... <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I guess... Oh, sorry. No, 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 you're right. Um, I was going to say that um, I, I guess I can going back to the Ghibli worlds, you know, so much of the governments and things like that in, I know you haven't seen it, but Howl's Moving Castle or Princess Mononoke, there's enough there that you can get a taste of what's going on, but it's not all explained. And I guess that's part of it too, is you can have your pages and pages of research. And as, as I said, I, I've come up with different research and stuff like that too. And while it will add authenticity to your writing, you don't have to include every single thing that you've come up with. I took out 10,000 words. This is not an exaggeration. 10,000 words of exposition. I don't regret putting them in this book because they are going to come in hand because they almost inspired me. They, not almost. They are the reason why I'm writing a sequel. And you better believe those words will be put to good use in a sequel. But ultimately, you have to keep things within the perspective of your protagonist. And if you, yeah, I'll, I'll let you. Well, I guess I heard the, the, breath. the other point that I was going to say um, that yes, it becomes an accessibility problem for, you know, people being able to, to enter the story um, when you've got such a dense, complicated explanation for everything but even if you can get past that barrier and people are reading your stories like let's say for example you are writing an entry to star wars or star trek or something like that if even if you have an audience who is willing to to consume your story and it's so full of exposition and explains everything you reduce the chance for discussion too i think you like that's part of a lot of these fandoms 
is discussing what do you think this means and and what do you think happened here between this part and this part and what do you think about this you know and speculating about future events like that's part of being in a fandom i mean it's not something that i engage with a lot but for a lot of people speculating about what is going to happen next is a huge part and if you fill your story with a complete description of everything that has ever happened within that universe you're kind of going to run into a brick wall with speculation because you've explained everything. Like sometimes leave it up to the imagination. Completely agree. Now I will also say I have been writing as a journey. You will get better with everything you publish. One of the mistakes I made with beds are for flowers was the steep learning curve. I didn't do enough early exposition. I left too much to the imagination for the reader, not too much to the imagination and that the world didn't have rules too much to the imagination and that they, they took them probably about 30 pages in a book. That's probably about 140 pages to learn all the rules. And it would have made a much smoother transition and bumped up the word count uh, a little bit more. If I had adjusted them, a little bit more seamlessly or transition them a little bit more seamlessly into the world with honestly just some point blank telling i know that there's that golden rule of show don't tell and yes i agree with it i don't think anyone will disagree with it but i think it's been so it that rule made me a worse writer than just starting off as a shitty writer who told everything because i, can, I was I then, completely agree yeah. i completely i was so tell of adverse i i was so tell adverse that i couldn't tell a story and you have to tell a story sometimes to get to, to just move it along. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll let you go. No, 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 not at all. Um, I, I completely agree with that because obviously starting out, you know, you do this and it's the same as, you know, the rigid belief in the hero's journey or th- you're looking for some surefire way to create a perfect book that everyone is going to love. And that's just not going to happen. But, you know, you, Oh, I've lost my point. Um, what, were, what were we saying? Sometimes, sometimes it's okay to just, I'm not saying to say the girl was angry, but it's okay to show that she clenched her jaws and, and uh, clutched her fists because the woman who entered the room had a history of beating her. Yeah, and that's... You that's, can tell them that detail and show them the anger. Yeah, no, and that, that's, I guess, what I'm saying is that, um, you know when you say show don't tell is the big rule, you know, you set it up and you try to do it every single time, but you end up creating a more convoluted story and it's not necessarily as clear as well. Now, obviously do you want to turn around and say um, she was angry? He was sad. You know, you want to put a little bit more of a flair in it than that. But there are times when if the pacing is meant to be really, really fast at that point, sometimes just getting the information across really quickly is is more important than than having that creative flair because you you if if you get bogged down in some you know big paragraph about every little twitch and eyebrow you know lift and you know curl of the the smile and you know every little description that you put in if you put in a whole paragraph of stuff trying to show not tell in a fast-paced scene you're going to drag the pacing way way down so it's important that you know when to to bend and when to break the rules yeah you're gonna know that her heart her resting heart rate went down to like 45 beats per minute um before you actually see the pen knife get thrust uh, thr- uh, thrust across the uh, across the the table 
I was really struggling to put that visual together. <laughs> but you're going you're gonna to know such bizarre details before you actually get to the action. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and there are times when I feel like that's necessary and you can have that maybe in those quieter moments that are more um, emotionally resonant you know, those slower paced moments where the characters take a moment to stop and breathe, you probably can put more of that in there. But I think, yeah, when, when you're dealing with a fast paced scene, you, you kind of need to keep that fast pace going and keeping it short and sharp and just, just pushing through that action to keep the reader engaged and going to the next part. And then you have Jay Kristoff who writes a poem for every show he has in his book god bless him by the way god bless jay Kristoff because <laughs> love him or hate him he he does his thing <laughs> he does. i actually i actually do have a lot of respect for jay um i unfortunately couldn't get into the the gemina series it's their trilogy it's the only thing i've read by him i've heard great reviews of nevernight i've heard i've heard the purple prose of nevernight as well um which was what i was partially referencing there but but bless that man for for, for just like for fucking doing it man <laughs> Well, that's, that's one thing that I do love. I love when people are able to break rules and, you know, yeah, it doesn't always work, but I love when people are willing to take that chance and break the rule. And I think that's, that shows character development on the writer's side that, you know, you're able to take a chance. And I don't obviously mean, you know, um, you know, I've created my erotic vampire novel that has 375 main characters and, you know, like- I would sell. If they're all having sex, that would sell. At once, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. If, <laughs> 375 if the, people, it's just this scrum. It's just, and it If will it's take, literally called Vampire Sex Party, that's selling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, and we, we could do that. We could do that. We could create some erotic, ironic, erotic vampire fiction and see if it sells. <laughs> vampire ironic, Sex Party. Ironic erotica does sell. Chuck Tingles has a very devoted fan base. <laughs> There you go. Maybe, maybe, maybe we need to look into that as a side hustle. <laughs> he he, ha, he has a, a a song or not a song. I don't know why I said song. He has a, a book called like "Pounded in the Butt by the Pound." How like the socioeconomic division has fucked me in the ass or something like that. Like he's fucking hilarious. <laughs> he he has pounded in the butt by my own butt. Like <laughs> I think he, yeah. He, yeah, I think um, I think we part. we totally need to to look into writing that. Absolutely. I don't know why I said vampire, maybe as we said it, he has a raptor, velociraptor erotica. I know, I know who you're talking about now. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, he he has erotica where people can turn into helicopters. And that's amazing. (laughs) Because why not? But again, it's like, I love that, that idea of, of people who are able to, to break rules and yet still come out successful. Dude, it's it's the fucking best. I mean, it's funny how we went from Jake Kristoff to Chuck Tingles, but it, it honestly it it just goes back to our original point. Let's let watch watch us tie this full circle. One of our original points of you learn the structure of the story and then you improvise. Yeah. And that's why I feel so confident about Father in the Forest. I know that it's the most structurally sound book I've written. You might not like it. You might have critiques about it. You might think that some areas of it suck or are weak writing. But that's going to happen for every book ever. There's always going to be someone. Exactly. But the structure is sound. It's still a house. It still has its walls, its foundation, its ceiling, its roof. It's not going to get blown over by a hurricane. Well, okay, depending on the hurricane. But you know what I mean. It's, it, <laughs> you can live in it. 
It's not a condemned house. It's structurally sound. No, and, and though, I have to say, though, though I haven't read it, um, from what I know, because I've been there since, like, the inception of it, um, from what I know of the basis that you have made around it, it has an incredibly solid foundation as a story. Yeah, and I'm very very excited to share it with the world because of that. I mean, and thank you so much for that, by the way, as well. It, uh, you're, you do have, your opinion does mean a lot to me. Um, we talk so much about it. You were there when it was, con- when the idea was conceived. I really do appreciate and, that. And you know, you know, I don't hold back if I don't like something, <laughs> even if, even if it's true. copped me uh, a bit of flack. Yeah. And, and I, I really do appreciate your opinion on it. I mean, I think it does help that you you had some direct input in the story. So so maybe you take a little extra pride in that as well. Um, but you you were there t- talking to me every night that I was writing. I wrote it. I wrote in April. I mean, I said it today when I posted the caption um, with my cover reveal uh, that that this at the very end of the day is something I'm proud of. It's something I wrote in isolation in quarantine this year, and felt strong about, and sent it off to an editor, and felt strong about and took those editor notes and completely transformed the book, including deleting 10,000 words of exposition and felt strong about. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I'm just so excited to share it with the world and I'm very happy that you like how it sounds. I I am super excited to um, read about it. And I guess that kind of naturally flows into another thing that I was going to say is you obviously have a much better work ethic than I do. (laughs) And I guess. I disagree. Oh, I, I disagree entirely. I, you you work so much. You work so many more hours than me. Oh, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> but I guess what I was going to say is that, you know, how do you, for the listeners, can you explain how do you go through and set yourself goals and make sure that you can achieve writing a whole entire story in the allotted time rather than just saying, Oh, I'll come back to it later and I'll check it. And then I'll see when it's ready because you can spend forever waiting for it to be ready. So I, I want to hear more about your process creating for a story from scratch. Yeah. You can spend forever waiting for Godot. Um, I mean, the big thing I do is I don't do daily time goals, I do daily quantity goals. So rather than saying I'm going to write for three hours today, I say I'm going to write 3000 words today. Uh, It could take me three straight hours, it could take me an hour and a half, it could take me a bunch of 20 minute intervals, but I'm going to hit that 3000 word goal. Uh, I I could start it at 10am and I could finish it at one at 1am, like the next day. That actually defeats the purpose, I could finish it at midnight. (laughs) Um, But I am going to hit that 3000 a day goal. Um, or, or maybe 2000 a day, depending, depending on how much real life is kicking my ass at that time. Uh, and then with the editing, I'm going to get through this many chapters today. I'm going to get through, uh, this many, uh, no, if it's development edits, I'm going to get through this many tags today. Um, I make sure that all of my goals are quantity based, not time based because they're so much more tangible. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds, that sounds really good because I have to admit that's something that I don't do. Like I often work more so just like I'll just keep going and keep going until I feel exhausted. Um, But sometimes that happens a little bit more quickly than I would like and you don't get as much done. But I guess setting that, that goal and saying you have to hit this particular number is going to get so much more work done than my terrible, terrible method. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's not a terrible method if you're designed 
to, to work till you fail. Um, like for example, with fitness, there are, there are plenty of people who lift weights who are like, I'm going to lift to fail or, or lift until I can't, um, until I can't lift anymore. And that's a fine, that, that, that's a, uh, that, that, that's a fine strategy to go by. Sorry, my dad texted me there for a second. I had to respond because I figured if he's texting me at, at like this late at night, it's important. Um, but for me, lifting to fail doesn't work. I'm, I'm a reps based guy. I need to aim for reps and I'm going to go until they're tired and I'm going to keep going a little hurt further and push myself to hit a goal that's beyond my comfort zone, but I'm a reps based guy. So it, for me saying that I want to do something to fail, all that's going to do is tell my mind that once I fail, I can be done for the day. So it's time to fail fast and fail hard. Yes. If I'm, if I'm going reps, I can't do that. I have to hit those numbers. And see, that's where, yeah, I would, I would like to get into that habit more so because I do have that habit of just getting to a certain part of the day. Like it'll be later on. I work much better in the mornings, but like I'll get to a certain part of the day where I'll be like, right, I have to get this done today. And then you'll get started and then you'll be like, I'm like three quarters of the way through and you might push through to the end, but you know, setting those goals and being more regimented is something that I think I definitely need to do more of. It protects your mental health too. I mean, if you go till you're exhausted every day, you're going to be exhausted the entire time. If you're aiming for, I'll just say 3000 because it's what I go for most of the time. But if you're going for like, let's just say 1000 words, you could be incredibly energized by the time you hit those 1000 words. And maybe you want to go a little further, but I wouldn't recommend going too much further because if you remain disciplined and you just hit those goals and you stay on your timeline, then you're just training your body to hit that day in and day out. And it, does, it's, it just becomes a habit. It just becomes second nature for you. You're going to sit down, you're going to knock out that, those words, and then you're going to go about your day and you're gonna be, you're, you'll be able to do more as well. I would, the, another reason why I would argue specifically for indie authors not to go too far beyond is because it takes so much more than writing a book to make it as an indie author. You could get lucky, but more, off, more often than not, you're going to have to, learn another skill to sell books, whether it be marketing, whether it be running Amazon ads or Facebook ads, whether it be making beautiful graphic designs to draw people's attention, or in my case, which is how I, I, I've been selling most of my books lately, growing a YouTube channel. It's going to take a lot of time. And if you're just like saying, man, I feel so energized because I hit my word count goal, I'm going to keep going. Now you're eating into time that you previously had allocated to benefit your career in another way. Me producing YouTube videos on music is still benefiting my writing career because these are now people. I have that 1% rule, which is pretty on the nose most of the time. I know that every 100 subs I get is probably going to be someone who just genuinely loves everything I put out and will therefore want to buy my books. So it does not do me justice to not create videos one day because I had to go above and beyond with writing. And I think that's the thing for me personally is that I often overshoot and overcommit to stuff. Like you're talking about someone who joined YouTube and then spent like the first year making a video every single day. Um, and again, there were, there were videos that were not of a, as great a quality as they would have been if I'd made them once a week. Um, you know, and then, but then you'd make videos and then your writing would suffer. Like you, you know, it was about that allocation of time, which is, I think something that I definitely need to work on. And that's something that I, I think you do so well. Yeah. I, um, I mean, the one thing I've been failing out lately is actually getting through a round of editing on this, on this other th project I'm working on right now. Um, because 
I'm just giving myself a break right now. Uh, but my life's been thrown for a bit of a loop lately, just between um, taking care of a lot of family stuff, um, actually making sure that I have some income and then growing the YouTube channel. But because it's editing and not writing, I've, I've also have a much uh, more relaxed timetable. I don't need to hit a draft by a certain date. I just have to finish this last round of editing by a much further along date. And uh, then I send it off to someone else to do all of the final uh, proofreads and, and, and line edits. So it's another reason why you can be a little bit more relaxed with the edits. The only thing that uh, being a little faster on the edits would, would help with is moving on to the next project a little faster. Um, but I do think it's important to regiment your time, not regiment your time, but give yourself those tangible goals daily that you know you can commit with some spare time to pursue the other endeavors that will benefit your career because you will not make it with just one skill. We, we all need to be a bit of Renaissance men and women now. Yep. No, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, so I guess putting it, to the complete opposite end of the spectrum, like from plotting and, and planning in the beginning through to the finished product. At what point do you say, okay, I'm done. It's going off to the editor now. I think I have it down to pretty much a number of edits. Like I, I do the rough draft. I do the second draft. I send it off to a development editor because I, at that point I've done all I can, uh, with just my imagination and, and my eyes, uh, they, in this case, it's Montgomery Pierce, who is a fantastic development editor for anyone listening, uh, walk me through each chapter point in directions where, I mean, she's great. I told her I wanted to make the steampunk and she filled in, she, she like highlighted areas where I could create more steampunk settings and it wouldn't come across too, um, too intrusive. Like she, she's so fucking fantastic at that. So she helps, she gets me through the, the development edits. Um, she's incredibly uh, detailed with it. It takes me forever to get through those. Um, then I do a follow-up edit afterwards to add in any additional scenes in this case um, that just aren't necessarily required for the structure, but will create a deeper character. So for example, I want to flesh out a relationship between two characters. Their relationship is fine. I just want to have that little deeper element and I know I need to add a scene. So this is just adding in one additional scene to it to make, to just give it that depth. Um, and once I finish this line, this round of edits, then I go through it one more time just to make sure that it's what would, what should I say? Cosmetically attractive. Would that, does that work? I assume everyone understands yeah. what I'm saying right there. Um, that it's just the fine details are there. And then I send it off to the final editor for line edits and then proofreads. No, oh, that sounds really good. And I do want to go back and say that, um, that I've spoken to Montgomery Pierce about the editing that she does. And I think the, her philosophy was broken down into one statement that she'd said to me that she doesn't believe that, you know, needs more work is valuable criticism. She's like, you, you have to have specific examples as to why this isn't working and some of the directions that you can go in. So yeah, if, if you want development edits, I would go there because that, that philosophy in and of itself is exactly what you need in a, de particularly a developmental editor, because obviously you're talking about fundamental stuff within the story. It's not just cleaning up the pros or, or anything like that. She will point blank say, this serves no purpose. So you either need to add these elements to tie it into the story or get rid of them. Yeah. And that, and that's what you want. Someone who's straightforward, but 
also someone who can give more than just she gives you directions. Of, yeah. yeah, and yeah, and more than just saying yeah, this doesn't work. It's saying okay, well, but where can you go from this? And she gives you options. I swear, I, I could I could spend an entire hour talking her up. She gives you options. She's like, this is how I'm feeling reading this. If you, it's not a good feeling. If you want this feeling, then you should take it in this direction. If you want this feeling, you should take it in this direction. If you want this feeling, you should take it in this direction. These are the only three feelings that really make sense to me. Um, if you can think of a fourth, let me know. But this is how I see it moving forward. Yeah, no, that's, see, that sounds amazing. And, and probably really, I mean, if she would be willing to, I'd be happy to have her on the podcast because I feel like you could talk for hours on end to, to her about, about editing and about story choices and, and plotting and, and everything to do with writing. You should 2 million percent do that because she is fucking brilliant. She understands the anatomy of a story like no one else. I also forgot to say that with my editing, um, when I'm doing these after development edits, like the, 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 the first edits after going through the development edits, I also do that uh, by listening to a computer generated voice reading my work back to me. Um, I do that too. I, I just started doing it and I think it's an important, this is the first project I'm doing it on. And I think it serves such an important purpose because you will hear just how awkward things sound if it's read out loud in a different voice. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I've been doing that for a very, very long time. Um, you want to try and find one that sounds as natural as possible, which sometimes is a little bit difficult to, to find, but um, I've been doing it for a very long time because sometimes you read the same part of the story over and over again, and you've learned it by rote. Like you could say that you're just, you, you could just say it off by heart at that point, And then it loses any kind of analytical edge that you can give to it. So sometimes it's nice just to hear that fresh from someone else. Your brain corrects the mistakes for you. It, you what you're reading is not what's actually on the page. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, Basically, I guess the, the, the primary advice I can say is identify your writing weakness and do everything in your power to make it as easy to get through that weakness as possible. For me, it was the second draft. So I made sure I did everything in my power with the rough draft to make the second draft as easy as possible to get through. And that's why this book I'm so confident in compared to my others. Um, it's why this book, I, I feel like it has more structural sound than the others. And it's, it's ultimately why I'm just like so excited to not just publish this book, but then to move on to the next project with all of the lessons I've learned from it. Because one very important lesson from writing is you never stop learning. Not only that, you never really hit your prime. Like, like it's, it's, it's not sports. It's, it's not American football where you hit 30 and you have to start thinking about a career change. You'll, you'll probably hit your prime in your 40s, 50s, 60s even. Well, I mean, you would hope that you kind of never hit your prime that you're always on that, that upward trajectory and trying to, trying to, to improve your work. Um, you know, I mean, and there are people who have peaked with their first book, <laughs> but I think that's because if you look at some of those people who had massive success with their first book or first book series, quite often they get surrounded by people who tell them that they are the greatest thing since sliced bread and they stop that trying to learn. They stop having that willingness to learn about their craft and to learn more about what will make them a better writer. That's actually been documented, not with, uh, not with writers, but with children. 
they did an experiment on second graders, I believe it was. It was either second graders or kindergartners. I think it was second graders where they had them all solve a puzzle and they told half the kids that they were naturally talented and that's why they solved the puzzle. And they told half the kids that they worked really hard and solved the puzzle. And as the puzzles progressively got harder, the kids that they said were naturally talented and great gave up when the puzzles became difficult. The kids that they complimented and said, you worked really hard to complete that, continued working hard and advanced further along into the higher difficulty puzzles. Well, because the thing is, I mean, we all sort of get caught up in the work from time to time, but I've had this before where, um, you know, editors have, have sent stuff and, you know, one in particular um, sent me feedback and said, you know, I'm going to critique your work here. I think you've got a fair amount of skill and, you know, things like that and, and complimented my work, but then turned around and said, um, but at the very least you have finished a book, like regardless of whether it gets published or not, that is a huge achievement in and of itself. And I think, I think as writers, not even necessarily authors, but as writers, I think we need to stop and say, well, do you know what? I actually finished this. This is a huge deal. You know, I should pat myself on the back for that, just for having completed that. Because as you say, when you get that positive feeling of, of accomplishment, it will push you to keep going. Yes. And not only that, I guess what I can say is don't necessarily say you're talented or don't tell your friends who completed it they're talented. Tell them they worked really hard on it and they deserve to feel good because they worked so hard on it. Yeah. And that's the thing. Cause like, I, I have to admit, I, I don't know if it's a cultural thing with Australians or whether it's just, just me, but I never compliment myself or like, or like acknowledge that I've worked really hard on something. And so, and I think if I were to do that more, it probably would be helpful thinking about what you've just said with, with people, you know, acknowledging hard work and, and feeling good about that hard work will inspire you to do more. Um, so that's probably something that I need to work on myself, but I think that that's great advice for writers in general. Yeah. Um, and that, that's just pretty much where I'm at right now. Okay. So thank you so much, RK Gold for joining us today. Um, just quickly before we go, do you want to tell everyone a little bit more about yourself and where they can find you? Yeah. I mean, first off, if everyone, if anyone is listening to this podcast right now, I highly recommend you check out AG McDonald's YouTube channel. The guy who's hosting this podcast is fucking brilliant. Listen to him dissect books. I've learned so much from his Murakami videos. He is fucking brilliant. Subscribe to his channel immediately. Hopefully he puts these podcasts up on there too. Uh, you can find me at author RK Gold on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to me on YouTube, RK Gold, or you can just type up top youtube.com slash C slash RK Gold. I mostly do music reactions there and I dissect the language of hip hop music. 